0: Hi again, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Photographers of Color podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Turner, Research Fellow in Photography here at the University of Arkansas School of Art. On this podcast, we talk about what it means to be a person of color, work within photography and other lens-based media today. Today's guest is New York-based artist Danielle Bowman. Bowman received a BFA from the Cooper Union, and an MFA from the Yale School of Art, where she was awarded the 2018 Richard Benson Prize. She was recently awarded the 2020 Aperture Portfolio Prize and was a contributor to the New York Times Magazine's 1619 Project. Bowman has been an artist in residence at Baxter Street at the Camera Club of New York, the Center for Photography at Woodstock and Picture Berlin. During this podcast, we talk about two bodies of work here now in which she explores landscapes of historical significance in the U.S., monuments and artifacts found in museums and public spaces, all in an effort to investigate the histories of people left out of the grand historical narratives that we're more familiar with. The other body of work that we talk about is what had happened. Bowman returns to where she grew up. The Baldwin Hills, Inglewood, and Crenshaw neighborhoods of Los Angeles, California, opening her own history to ask questions about the role, location and landscape play in personal evolution. With a particular interest in black baby boomers and the Great Migration, which refers to the movement or relocation of more than six million African-Americans from the rural South to cities of the North, Midwest and West from about 1916 to 1970. Here's episode 10 with Danielle Bowman. Enjoy. So first question, Danielle, uh, can you tell us a little bit about growing up in LA and your first experiences with the camera that led you down the path to be an artist?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I I have always been engaged in some sort of a creative like endeavor um I did a lot of painting and drawing and making things as a kid uh, a little kid and I got really into videos and making videos so there I had a birthday like 11th or 12th birthday where I asked for, like, a camcorder and got one, and so I started actually making these videos of my friends before I started doing still photography, and then in the high school that I went to, there was a really excellent arts program, visual and performing arts, and um, I kind of, I don't know, I, I had never really taken photo classes before, like, seventh grade, I think, seventh or eighth grade, but I was just intrigued and um the photo teacher was really cool this like amazing older man mr hartsfield harris hartsfield who is no longer with us but yeah i mean he i started taking pictures and i think he saw some something in me that he wanted to work with or you know at the very least to help me sort of cultivate and so, yeah, I mean, pretty much since 12 or 13, I mean, I've been taking pictures ever since Since then. And, you know, obviously the older I got and going to art school, doing it a little with a little more intention and a little more seriously, but it's always been, um, it's been a part of my life for a long time.
0: Were you ever influenced by looking through family photo albums?
1: You know, I don't know if I was influenced by them. I think I have a really strong curiosity about family history, but I think a lot of people have that. I think it's, you know, there's a reason why Ancestry.com and all the DNA stuff is as popular as it is. I think we all have a sort of innate curiosity about our, you know, family before we were born and what they did and why they did it and how they did it because ultimately all of those decisions contribute to our existence, you know? So I think I was as curious about it as anyone else. And now I'm, I'm probably starting to think more about those old family photos in a more considered way, but yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And so after high school, you go on a study at Cooper union then you go on to Yale. Tell me a little bit about what happened in those spaces and what questions you were asking yourself. Uh, How it all led to the project here now where you were looking at landscapes, monuments and artifacts found in museums and public spaces.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the funny thing about um, the work I did at Cooper, which I've been thinking about more recently, not because it was good, because it wasn't, (laughs) but because um, I was going into people's homes and private spaces at that time. And it's something that I picked back up again, not for here now, but for what had happened. And I feel like by the time I finished at Cooper, I sort of swore to myself that I would never work in that way because I could never, I was never able to conceptually understand why I was doing it or um it just didn't feel like it was enough like I was really focused on portraiture at Cooper and I was really focused on photographing people in personal private spaces and at anyone friends family uh, and so like I said I would photograph people in their homes but also I would photograph friends in their studios But there was always something missing to me from that work. And that could have everything to do with the kind of environment that Cooper is. Like, it's really, at least when I was there, it felt like making work that was intellectual or conceptual or just kind of challenging in some way was what we all were supposed to be prioritizing. And I don't know that it was the faculty that was making me feel that way or like my peers, but the work that I was making never felt like it was doing that. And so by the time I graduated, I think I was happy with what I had done, but also kind of disappointed that it wasn't like, I don't know, that it wasn't more complicated. So Mm -hmm. I kind of put that, I put that away and I put that way of working away. And then by the time I got to grad school, I think I still had a a lot of that baggage of not feeling like, what I was doing was smart enough or intellectual enough or conceptual enough. And so I, you know, it's like totally overcompensated. You go from like one zero to (laughs) a hundred. And I was so concerned with making work that felt smart or that felt like some sort of a conceptual gesture during the first bit of grad school that I really lost sight of why I was taking pictures in the first place or even just like the pleasure of looking because I was so hyper concerned with making everything feel like art with a capital A. And so it really took time for me, I had to do some like deep thinking, less intellectual and more sort of like a visceral thinking to figure out not only what I wanted to make work about but how I wanted it to look and why I wanted to look and. So I ultimately, you know, after several horrible grad school critiques (laughs) was like kind of at a loss and, um, you know, trying to figure out how to find something from a conceptual standpoint that meant something to me that didn't just feel like a gesture towards intellectualism, but also find something that compelled me on on a purely visual level. And so... I just gotten to the point where I was like, okay, well, like, what do I actually wanna make work about and how do I want it to look without, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's just me, it's just me in my studio, it's just me in the room, like I don't have to impress anyone, I don't have to win anyone over, what do I actually wanna do, what do I actually wanna see? And so in that sort of going back to ground zero or back to the drawing board, I think I also decided to go back to black and white and to just go back to light and to textures and to shadow and to tonality and um, the pleasure I get from like a really well done black and white image and all the tones um, a curiosity I think that I also have about like the ways that black and white photography can be pushed to you know past what is a proper print I also was thinking about an interest in history that I've always had I've always been fascinated with history any history really and I still am and so the combination of the like going back to black and white thinking about history thinking about history in a way of getting some potential for making art from it and really just sort of thinking about well what do I want to do and what do I want to see that's what led me to the here now world
0: and can you tell us about some of the visuals that we see in here now you photograph in the bust and I was reading a little bit about uh, what you were saying about it like this part of history sort of exists mm-hmm. and then other parts of history that should be included are excluded so mm-hmm. that this particular history can continue to exist
1: mm-hmm. or have
0: sort of a prominent space in history
1: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well i like, I had been specifically looking at the landscape photography of the Western United States from the late 1800s. So Carlton Watkins, Timothy O'Sullivan, and I had never really considered, I never really considered those photographs. Like they were always interesting to me from, again, the sort of historical artifact standpoint, but then in my sort of in my pursuit of what are my, what are like my elemental pleasures in terms of photography, in my pursuit of that, I started reevaluating those pictures and kind of enjoying them for how lush they are and how they depict landscape and the clarity in them. And so I was looking at those, but in my revisiting of those, I was also reading a lot about the context in which they were created and um, I had never really, I had never, you know, I'm sure I learned it at some point, but I don't think I had ever thought so much about or understood so much that those images were propaganda, right? They were created, they were commissioned by the government. They were mm-hmm. created in order to take land away from people who had been living there under the guise of protection and our preservation. Um, you know they were like it was a total totally colonialist enterprise, so you know, sort of coming to term not coming to terms with but thinking about that aspect aspect of it, but also thinking about the way that the that landscape photography of those places, even contemporaneously like people, tourists who go to those places and photograph Yosemite and all those places, they take the same exact pictures that like the same exact pictures, obviously, because not everyone can climb to the tops of the summits, but a lot of the views that people take, I think are are guided by postcards, which are guided by those early, early, early images. And so it just, you know, it was crazy to me, the idea that, and it is still as crazy to me, the idea that one man commissioned by the government to take this image from forever since then or from then on, like that's what we see. When we think of Yosemite, we see Timothy O'Sullivan's image or we see Carlton Watkins's image. And it just felt like a greater metaphor, like it felt like a metaphor to, to me of this idea of like one person getting to decide what is the important perspective on something for everyone else. And the rest of us just sort of like accepting that and not really questioning, what the person who made the initial decision had at stake in it. You mm-hmm. know, I hope that made sense. I feel like it was kind of rambly.
0: <laughs> no, that makes sense. Cause I think what you're getting at and what you were talking about a little bit earlier is about you are talking about being interested in, in history and just any history mm-hmm. in, in general. And like, I think where photography and hist- in history and photography and photography as art sort of intersect is like this obsession whether it's in the studio or just out in the world, it's like, you have to explore something photographically. And then you have like these base principles, like light shadow, Mm -hmm. um, pushing film. And then you combine that with these tangible elements of like, oh, I wonder, you know, I'm curious about this Western landscape. And then you make a body of work. So, I I, I mean, I'm sort of interested in all the same things. I'm interested in, in all types of history, like history around specific cameras specific time period and some of the work that i do it's like it's hard to like let go of some historical facts because you're so obsessed with it and you're trying to just continue to like dig away and mind at this thing that you're like obsessed about
1: mm-hmm. if that makes
0: any sense <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. but speaking of history Another thing that I'm obsessed with is the Great Migration. So when I heard you speak a few weeks ago on Zoom, you were talking about the Great Migration. I'm like, oh my goodness, like, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So I haven't met a peer that was, like, really interested in that as well. And so you spoke about the Great Migration, Baby Boomers, and then how that sort of morphed into your project, what Mm -hmm. had happened. You have your residency and solo show at the Baxter Street Camera Club. Mm -hmm. Okay present that work in a solo show. And then in the most recent Aperture Portfolio Prize, Leslie Martin describes her work. She says, Bowman's work describes the passage of time and memories of home, or more precisely, the homes one makes on leaving old ones, mm-hmm. about the search for better places in which to put down new roots and grow.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What, do you, what do you, how do you respond to that?
1: I mean, I think I was, so blown away by what Leslie wrote about my work as an artist. You, I'm sure, are very familiar with like <laughs> the struggle that is trying to talk about our work, right? And so, when you sort of toil away at something, and you know that you have certain ideas about it and how it's working and how it's not working, um, to re- to be able to read someone else's thoughts and see that they are able to pinpoint so clearly what you are not able to because you're so involved in the work is like really, um, is really lovely, it's awesome. I mean, I'm really grateful for her attention and her patience with the work and just sort of like being able to look at it and sit with it. So that being said, yeah, I mean, I think um she, she very eloquently said something that i think i had in mind in terms of like you know just sort of going into these people's homes and um looking for traces of the past and like clues and artifacts and traces in a similar way that i think i was looking at those sorts of things with the what had happened work it's just that with that work i was in museums and then or sorry for the here now work but with the here now work, I was in museums. And with what had happened, the museum essentially became the home.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's looking for all of these, you know, moments. And I think when I initially started that work, I was looking literally for object objects and artifacts. But once I started photographing, I realized that those weren't necessarily always making the most interesting pictures. And in mm-hmm. that sometimes the moments or the hints of another time that I was looking for were actually, you know, like someone's hairdo, you know, that with that particular picture, bump and curl, that hair really is so specific to me. Like I, the people in my life that I have associated that hairstyle with, times in my life where I have accidentally wound up with that hairstyle, (laughs) Um, yeah, it just, uh, it feels so much like an artifact of a very particular kind of a person. And so I think, you know, I like to think not only is Leslie speaking to the physical accoutrement in the home and like frames and molding and that kind of thing, but also to those sort of things that we have on our person, like our hairstyles.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned uh, vision bump and curl. Cause I was, I had that down to ask you about it. So I'm mm. glad you got to it first. Within this project, you're investigating the histories of people left out of the grand historical narratives, uh, which we are more familiar with. Can you talk about that uh, mm-hmm. more in relationship to the Great Migration, and your views on baby boomers, uh, mm-hmm. how you, how your own family ties into that, mm-hmm. and how that created the body of work? What had happened?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, you know, sort of continuing to think about those ideas and um, wanting to be more specific with them. I, I wanted to pinpoint a period in history that was personally significant without necessarily making work that was autobiographical. I think that I've always had a fascination with the Great Migration because I've always had a fascination with how, you know, I guess the sociological landscape of Black America as it is today came to be Um, and I think that that's something that I've always thought about I think as a kid the fascination played out in watching shows like Martin or Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or like any Wayans Brothers thing um, and wondering you know like what the demographic was how diverse it was like does everyone think this is funny like do all Black people think this is funny or do only some think this is funny so just sort of thinking about the way that we exist today (laughs) culturally, I think has always been interesting to me. I think the great migration has everything to do with planting those, those seeds. Right. So I think it was just a matter of me being able to give myself permission to be inspired by this, to make the pictures, but then also giving myself permission to not make pictures that were didactic or like not make Basically documentary pictures with baby boomers. Like the work very much, I think springs from that well, but it's definitely not pictures of the well. Do you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that goes back to what you said earlier. You were talking about the the, the photographs being a metaphor mm-hmm. uh, for like an interpersonal perspective because, mm-hmm. like you say, you could have just approached it just oh portrait after portrait after portrait after portrait. Um, But when I look at your work, I can clearly see that something is totally different about it. And the way Mm -hmm. that you approach is a very deliberate, specific way that you're photographing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that makes me want to ask you about the the photograph, Untitled Hand, uh, Mm -hmm. from the series as well. What what was your thinking behind that image?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, when I make pictures, I try to have, I, I like parameters. I like to say, okay, well I'm gonna photograph like at this place, or I want a picture of X, or I kind of want a picture that a picture that speaks to Y. But then when I'm actually working, I like to be as flexible as possible. And I like to surprise myself. Like if there's anything that I think I always strive for, it's to surprise myself. So that picture, that came after I had sort of set the parameters for what the project or for what I thought it was going to be at the time, which, you know, very loosely was: okay, photographs of Black baby boomers in LA. And um, I know the woman who owns that house. She's a family friend. She's been in my life since before I was born. And we went over to her. My grandfather was my assistant. <laughs> that day so he drove me over there and um I just the light was insane because it was LA at like 3 p.m and she lives kind of um near Crenshaw and if you know anything about that area in LA it's like it's very flat and the light feels really hard on that particular area just because a lot of the the homes are like bungalows or just like one story. There's really tall palm trees and it's just bright. There aren't like big leafy trees. There's just palm trees. So it's like bright and it's flat and the shadows are long and it's just kind of intense. And so there was already the intense LA afternoon light combined with the fact that there aren't really like leafy trees there. And the, and I noticed because the light was so intense, it was casting really beautiful shadows of the foliage she has, or of the bushes she has in her front yard, which are these like huge bird of paradise, birds of paradise bushes. I love birds of paradise cause they remind me of LA. And the blinds, there was something about the way that the, the light was rendering the blinds behind the, the window, behind the glass. Um, and I noticed the shadow of the Christmas trees along the top of the window, which like a lot of people don't notice. And so I'm probably gonna change the name of that picture. (laughs) I'll probably change the titles to say something about Christmas trees in October or Christmas lights in October, because that I feel like is something that you, like it's very specific to a particular kind Mm -hmm. of neighborhood, the Christmas lights up all year round. And so I was photographing that basically I was photographing the shadows of the birds of paradise and the Christmas lights, but then it felt like I needed to do something more to activate the space of the window. And so I had her put her hand in to, you know, to give a little bit of a punctuation, but also I think to speak to, you know, walking on the street and looking out at people or that feeling of being looked out at. So yeah, that's how that picture came to be.
0: Yeah. I think Uh, there's another thing I want to say about your work and and about how all of the layers like historically tie in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think your work like specifically being black baby boomers in LA. Like I've met black baby boomers from Mm -hmm. LA before and like Mm -hmm. when I always meet other people uh, like whether it's on the East Coast or anywhere else. I'm like, you know, what's your family background? You know, where did they migrate from? And it's always some place from the South
1: and how they
0: moved somewhere else I used to work with I don't know if you know the filmmaker Charles Burnett oh yeah Uh, I used to work with Charles at Bard College and we would talk about this all the time and he was telling me about you know different experiences that he had in the south and you know that being the reason he was going to stay out on the west coast he had no interest (laughs) in going back Um, (laughs) you can imagine what those stories were But it's just, you know, it just goes to show you that, you know. But, you know, I'm a firm believer in that the Great Migration or some form of it is still happening. Yeah. When I first got done with my studies, when I first got done with my MFA Rutgers, I moved back to Memphis. um, And I quickly moved back up north. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. where the opportunities continue to be. I'm back in Arkansas now. But I continue to have a network and opportunities pop up more so more often in the Northeast for me. It's almost like a, um, I don't know how to put it in the words, but it's like, you know, it, that's that's just what happens. That's just the way it goes sometime. And it, it may not be under the same circumstances as our grandparents and mm-hmm. parents, mm-hmm. but uh, there's still some sort of form of it happening and, and mm-hmm. sort of happening in today's world, I think. Your work, uh, going back to the historical ways that it ties in, you're dealing with history and here now, you're dealing with a specific history and what had happened, mm-hmm. and then you're dealing with a specific history in the 1619 project. Mm-hmm. All right, your image ended up on the cover, the
1: mm-hmm. black
0: and white photo of the ocean scene from Hampton, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, where the first slave ship landed. Mm-hmm. But then also you have the final image in the publication, which takes place in Savannah, Georgia, mm-hmm. um, the Weeping Time, which is the title of a book, also right. Yeah,
1: Central yeah,
0: title. by Dr. Yeah. Andrew Lee, Yeah. Uh-huh. And then that's about a, sl- a specific slave auction that happened. And then the, the actual image just depicts these railroad tracks where the scene used to uh present day. Uh these railroad tracks are present in that image. Mm-hmm. Um but I imagine it didn't look that way back when this slave auction happened. Um mm-hmm. so tell me what what it was like working on that project sort of from the beginning to the end.
1: Mm-hmm. It, 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 mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was really powerful and it was very intense. Um, and you know, I think, I think, I think of the experience in three different ways, like the intellectual experience, the emotional, the emotional experience and the physical experience of it. Um, just because they were all, (laughs) they all had their own trappings, I guess you could say like Physically, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work because <laughs> there was a lot of travel and um, just getting myself to the places and kind of understanding how to approach them or figuring out how to approach them photographically was a huge challenge because a lot of those places, this was something that I discussed pretty early on with Kathy Ryan um, and Jessica Dimson, who were my, my editors and the, you know, Kathy Ryan, the photo editor and Jessica Dimson, I think the deputy photo editor of the New York Times Magazine. But um, yeah, I mean, something we discussed really on was the sort of not, like a lot of the locations were not ideal from a photographic standpoint, an intersection somewhere in the middle of some town Obviously you can't control the weather. And so if you're traveling somewhere, you only have a certain amount of time to shoot it, whether or not the light is good. And so it was super, super challenging just to figure out how to photograph a lot of these places. And then again, like the labor of traveling, you know, was really was a lot. Um, but then on top of that, just the sort of, I think not responsibility, but the, I really, really felt so strongly about being so honored to have been asked to be the person to photograph this for this particular issue that has now won a Pulitzer, which is amazing. And okay. big congrats to Nicole Hannah-Jones because she's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was quite an experience um, being at these locations and understanding what happened what had happened, right? But also seeing them for what they are today, which in a lot of the case was like an empty lot or like some train tracks or an intersection with a Confederate statue or, you know, really anything. And it kind of, it just kind of hammers home this idea of like, yeah, you never really know what has happened in places. You never really know, especially if no one is talking about it. Like you could be sitting on some some ground that probably is significant to someone right now and you would not be, you just wouldn't know because all of this history gets paved over. People don't have time to listen. And in a lot of the case, they don't really care to think about all of the horrible things that have happened in this country, especially in, you know, on these sites. So yeah, it was a really multifaceted intense experience that really, I think, you know, anyone who came into contact with the 1619 work um, and not, not my work, but like the whole thing, I think anyone who's come into contact with that, it, it's profoundly changed the way that they perceive history, the history of this country and, you know, the sort of present day, version of the United States of America that we live in. And then for me, like, yeah, as a person who has come into contact with the work of the other people who worked on it, and the writing and the other photography, uh, but also as a person who did work on it, it has profoundly changed the way that I think about this country. And obviously, you know, I like to think that I wasn't totally ignorant before, But it just really makes you, it makes you so aware of every little thing. I mean, you really, to be a part of something like that, it really gets inside of you and you, and you carry it with you, which I think is a good thing because it makes you really see just on a day-to-day basis, the way things are set up, why they're set up the way that they are. So I'm really grateful, ultimately. um, It was was a really eye-opening, you know, experience, for sure. And it changed the way that I think I approach my other work, just, like, working on something editorial and having to work in a very sort of clear and concise way, having to give very clear descriptions and having to photograph things that I probably wouldn't have normally photographed, places that I wouldn't normally have photographed. Uh, It made me very sort of like, I don't know, maybe more goal oriented with that work. Whereas with my own work, it's made me, it's helped me to become more process oriented with my own work, which I think is a good thing. And it's helped me to, doing that editorial work has helped me to figure out how to make my own work a little bit weirder, for lack of a better term. And with that, that whole
0: dynamic between personal and editorial work, Ah, uh, when you got the sixteen nineteen assignment, was that sort of satisfying to to be able to work on something that you uh, that kind of relates to your own personal work uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: in editorial space?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm really I really understand why they asked me to do that, and it was big you know because of the work that I made in grad school, the here and now work, which was starting to ask questions. I'll albeit vague, <laughs> but starting to ask some questions about like what gets to be historicized and what doesn't or what gets to be history and what doesn't. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I understand and I'm so grateful that they thought that I was the right person for the job and it was really gratifying to be working on something so important that also was, you know, is very easily related to my own work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you, you just started speaking about this before I asked you that other question. I was going to ask you what things still remain of interest for you just from working on that project and, mm-hmm. you know, what, what things stick with you and, and mm-hmm. that are potentially leading to newer work that you're making?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the I have to say, the experience of photographing at Monticello was pretty interesting. And I feel like I'm still thinking quite a bit about that you know, so maybe we'll see, maybe that will become something, but I just think the biggest thing that I'm left with after working with that is when I'm making work for myself, that's not necessarily for like an editorial purpose. It really feels like it's for me. Like it doesn't feel like it's in order to get a point across. Well, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but it it really feels like I'm just sort of looking and seeing for myself and that I don't necessarily have to be so like goal oriented. Like I don't have to necessarily be as clear because in my own work, I do prefer for things to be a little less clear. Like I, I prefer for things to be a little bit more in the gray area because I, my concern is that if you give everything up in an image, or if you don't ask the viewer to do any or people who are coming to your work to do any work, like if you give them everything, then they're not going to engage as deeply as they could and so for my own work, it's really important to maybe be a little less clear be in 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 that in that friction or i my hope is that in that um, sort of gray area, people will do a little more digging themselves, you know, like, I don't mean to be withholding or, or obtuse, or just like, I don't mean to make things confusing for the sake of being confusing. And it's not, I don't even know if being less clear is, is a good way to put it because clarity of vision and clarity of concept is really important to me, but Mm -hmm. I think it's more about I don't know. It's just something about, um, not giving it all up, you know, making people do some of the heavy lifting. Like I don't want to have to do all the work all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, like I want people to be able to come to the work and make their own connections. Yeah.
0: I mean I think you you kind of reached that place and th- that's that's going back to earlier in the conversation where you you were talking about making work at Cooper Union and this balance mm-hmm. between conceptual and intellectual it's mm-hmm. and then you put that work out there and you say you felt like something was missing it's it's just all a balance and it's, I feel like it's an ongoing question in everybody's mm-hmm. practice it's just like mm-hmm. you know how much do you give up and how much work does do everybody does everyone else do to mm-hmm. sort of understand where so, you know it's not i think you explained it perfectly
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. that's good because i feel like i'm rambling <laughs> no it's
0: like a it's an internal it, it's it's really like a revealing or peeling back of an internal balance you're really trying to think through it and i think that's what mm-hmm. we're all trying to do i know i do that on a daily basis mm-hmm. and we, mm-hmm. none of us have the perfect answer mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you know so with all that being said You just won the Aperture Portfolio Prize. So congratulations on that. Thank you. We've been talking about your journey so far leading up to this moment. Um, How does Danielle Bowman get here? What role has key mentors played in your life leading up to this moment?
1: Well, I mean, the support is worth, you know, it's worth its weight in gold, I think um, for sure. I've been really, really fortunate to have been put in the way (laughs) of people Um, (laughs) to, you know, I've been, I'm pretty demanding and I'm not quiet. So (laughs) I've been really, really lucky I think to understand the importance of photography and images and making work at a young enough age that I've really been able to dedicate a large portion of my, my time thus far to it, I've had, and then, you know, obviously getting to go to a school like Cooper is really, it's really a privilege. It's a huge, it was a huge privilege. Getting to work with the professors that teach there. I still think to this day about moment, and then my peers too, my, my classmates there. I still reminisce about moments in class being exposed to certain things that continue to impact me. Like Maya Darren, who I talk about a lot, has been a huge influence on my work. I was shown meshes of the afternoon in like a video one course at Cooper. Um, I think that was taught probably by Sharon Hayes. Um, But yeah, like um, amazing, amazing, amazing artists who were also really good teachers there. And then my family is incredibly supportive done whatever they could just to help yeah and then at at grad school in grad school just really sort of being a part of a community that was really working hard trying to figure out what we all cared about trying to help each other figure out what we cared about holding each other accountable always being ready to look at work and I really, you know, right now, I think those are the people that I rely on the most are my peers and old teachers from grad school, a little bit from undergrad, but um, I try, I don't want to bother them so much anymore since that was so long ago. But um, grad school, I one of my students asked me a couple, like a week ago, he's, gra- they're graduating and they, um, were concerned about who they could turn to for the kind of critical feedback post-graduation, I hadn't really thought about it, but I was like, oh, your peers, like who are the people who you feel the most confident about right now in class or in school? And you, and I know, that, I know that they know that it's not just about the people that will tell you what you want, right? It's not the yes people. It's the people that will hold you accountable and the people that will support you, the people that will be critical, the people that, you know, that don't have like a bone to pick or like a chip on their shoulder, but the people who just want to be critical and to like talk about work and the people that know that you would do that for them too. And so, yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a really tight group of, other artists that I talk to, um, mostly women, to be totally honest. <laughs> and I just, um, yeah, that's, those are my people. I mean, I really trust them. And I probably will always show them anything I make first. Like, they will be the first people to see what I do <laughs> and to talk about it with me.
0: Thank you, Danielle. Um, uh, next, I want to ask you about the pleasure in photographing. Uh, we talked about this a l- briefly a little bit earlier. You know, light, shadow, textures, black and white film. You're using the four by five camera. Um, the other week we spoke about LaToy Ruby Frazier, uh, Stephen Shore, and Robert Adams. Talk about the pleasure of photographing for you.
1: It's super important. It's super, super important because it's too easy for me to go back into that mode that I talked about a little bit earlier of like, trying to make everything seem smart or I guess overvaluing the intellectual and devaluing, you know, not on purpose, but like kind of with that overvaluing of the intellectual, there comes like a devaluing of anything that's not intellectual. And so I have really had to work on, you know, what is the pleasure in this for me? Like what, what am I literally attracted to and just allow myself to go there? not every picture you make is going to be a banger, right? Like we all know that some of them will look good, but they'll, you know, they'll basically be devoid of meaning. Some will be like overwrought, but not look good. And so I just try to let the photography lead, meaning, you know, the way that things look, I just try to let that lead me and shoot and trust that everything that I have in my, mind or whatever I'm thinking about will somehow wind up in the picture in some way or another. So I really, yeah, I mean, I, I think I look a lot or I have looked a lot at people like Robert Adams um, and, and Latoya Frazier because I feel, like, I feel like there is just something in the way that, that I perceive their photographs particularly Robert Adams, that's just, like, really about the pleasure of looking, you know? I think that there's a lot more going on than just that with his work and obviously, you know, with Latoya Fraser's work, but particularly the notion of family, I think? Is that what her... Mm -hmm. Yeah, with the notion of family... There is just something so loving in the way that she looks at those faces, even though it is hard to look. Um, there's something really, really tender, I think, and honest. And I think with Robert Adams, it's a little more scrutinizing. And so maybe there's something in between that I'm interested in.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of Latoya Ruby Frazier's work. She's one of the reasons I decided to start studying art. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Robert Adams, you know, I love his writing just as much as his Mm -hmm. photographs, because if you really Mm -hmm. dive into his writing, he's very open and candid, just about life as an artist and trying mm-hmm. to balance mm-hmm. how do you keep making them work how do you talk to your peers mm-hmm. and keep building network you know just mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. how to sustain yourself and so mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate him for being that candid in his writing and things like that mm-hmm. um i'm gonna try to freestyle this last question we talked about this a little bit last week i, I feel like now there a lot of things are surrounded of, a, a lot of things that are being made in the art world and just Photography in general, it's, it's around identity, you know? People mm-hmm. are speaking about race, uh, people are speaking mm-hmm. about sexual orientation, mm-hmm. all these different topics and subjects. And then it's layered mm-hmm. in between like power dynamics and gaze mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. historical narrative um, and, and the ways in which uh, we come to work or the ways in which artists come to be recognized I know I mentioned to you and this, this is just like a general statement. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go into all the specifics, but you know, you take abstract artists like, uh, Alvin Loving and mm-hmm. uh, Melvin Edwards, mm-hmm. and Jack Whitten mm-hmm. and all that work is receiving a lot of notoriety now. Mm-hmm. And they were making it when it wasn't the popular thing to make, especially mm-hmm. for black artists. Mm-hmm. Um, but then their white counterparts were also making that work Mm -hmm. and receiving recognition for it. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your outlook on all this stuff? Uh, Mm -hmm. Work that's dealing with identity, um, opportunities present for people of color and women in the art art world in the past and then now. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's your thinking around some of these things and and, and have you had any kind of direct interactions like uh, yourself within your Mm -hmm. work just Mm -hmm. as an individual?
1: Mm -hmm, Yeah. I mean, like, you know, on the one hand, I feel like my, my like gut reaction is that like, it kind of sucks that we have to think about this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just like, but it also, you know, I don't want to be, you know, that kind of, that's my, like I said, my gut sort of reaction. But when I actually take time to like, think, think, think about it, at the end of the day, I just want to be able to make what I want to make without feeling like I have to justify it as being about being black or being about being a woman. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, also, if I want to make something that is about my experience, then because of the fact that I'm a black woman, it's going to be from that perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting and I really feel for all of those people. I mean, that's what I was
0: mentioning earlier with, the Black artists who chose to choose abstraction. Right. Sometimes by their Black peers, they were t- not taken seriously.
1: hmm 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 Yeah, and I think that that's really unfortunate because we want to make what we want to make, and, and it really sucks that people... that their peers or that people made them feel, like, less than because yeah. they didn't necessarily want to talk about they didn't necessarily want to make work that was directly about blackness or being black all the time. Um, And it, you know, in my sort of making work with the Great Migration as a starting point, I think in a lot of ways, for me, it was hard to make that work because it felt like, I, I, I definitely was like, am I making work about, like, is this about being black? Like, is this a sort of a, I don't know, like a, an easy way of giving this importance. But then I realized, well, no, it's not because I have, a, I have a genuine interest in this from a personal standpoint. And I can also use this as a jumping off point to make pictures in any kind of way that I want. And I think that's part of the reason why the pictures look the way that they look is because it's not this documentary or it's not like directly about Blackness, it's about a kind of Blackness. And I think Blackness is a part of it. But I think it's also about LA. I think it's also about family. I think it's also about history and light and shadow. And and it's also about form, you know, and formal photography. So I just, I just want the room. I just want wiggle room. And I, I hope that people can be flexible and grant us the kind of flexibility that we desperately need if you feel like making work about being about whatever your identity is one day go for it if you don't the next day and literally just want to take pictures of plants that's also fine <laughs> mm-hmm. but i think we all just need to be a little bit more flexible with one another and i think we should probably be more flexible with ourselves and you know if you feel like you want to make work about something that doesn't feel like a problem of the day that's fine that's fine yeah.
0: Yeah, I like what you were just pointing out there about um, with the what had happened project. You know, it being about LA, it being about form. There, there are mm-hmm. these layers of universal things that we can all relate to, despite mm-hmm. what our background is. And I think that's the that's the balance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about a balance.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, thank mm-hmm. you for the
0: answer, Danielle. I appreciate you sharing your perspective.
1: I hope I'm sure. I hope it wasn't too, you know, it's like, it's hard. I mean, this is something that we all have to deal with and that like not all, obviously not all artists have to deal with that. So Mm -hmm. I have a strong reaction to it. And I also know that it's something that can easily keep people from making the kind of work that they want to make. And so it's really important to me or like be as honest as possible, (laughs) Mm -hmm. even though I'm kind of uncomfortable by how like, you know, how those thinking about that makes me feel. Uh, I think it's important to talk about. So I'm glad you asked.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I started Photographers of Color because I couldn't get this, um, I couldn't get this question out of my head. Mm-hmm. And also thinking back to when I was learning photography and first introduced to photography, I could mm-hmm. probably, you know, count on one hand how many photographers of color yet alone black photographers that I was introduced to.
1: Right, right. So my
0: goal was to introduce us to each other mm-hmm. and introduce everybody else to one another. Cause we all don't know each other sometimes. No, all, you know, it's hard to really keep up cause we're just in this vast world, especially in this world of social media and all this kind of stuff. It's sort of mm-hmm. easier to connect, but it's also overwhelming
1: mm-hmm. at the
0: same time. So mm-hmm. I'm just mm-hmm. trying to do my part and. uh, Just say, hey, look at this. That's all I'm trying to do.
1: And then there's this other thing that happens, and I'm sure this has happened to you, where I've gone to give lectures at places and done studio visits after at schools. And I've had multiple young women, young Black women come up to me and say, I came to your lecture because I saw your picture. Mm -hmm. And by my picture, they don't mean like a picture that I took. They mean a picture of me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: that's like, I mean, what am I, like, I can't, <laughs> like, I, it's so tough.
0: But that shows you like the need. I mean, there's that, right. right. There's the need to talk about these type of right. things because right. there are these different battles and power structures happening, especially mm-hmm. in institutions, universities and things mm-hmm. like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my brother says it perfectly. He said it was. You know, it's always important to see people who look like you doing Mm -hmm. exactly what it is that you do. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. And
0: that's always stuck Mm -hmm. with me. Mm
1: -hmm. It's true. It's really, really true. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 That's all (laughs) I got for you, Danielle. Uh, I thank you for taking your time out today to speak with me.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation.
0: That was my interview with Danielle Bowman. I hope you enjoyed it. The Center for Photographers of Color is partnering with Photo Emphasis, ran by Alec Coss and Raina Young. The open call is titled Backtalk, jeered by me. Some of the questions posed in the open call are, what is missing from contemporary photographic discourse? And who is missing from contemporary photographic discourse? The online exhibition is open to artists and photographers from all backgrounds, but I'll be making a selection of artists of color to be in a physical exhibition at the University of Arkansas. Dates for that show are to be determined due to the unknowns of how campus will reopen in the fall. To find out more about how to submit, go to photo-emphasis.com. The deadline for the show is July 5th. To find out more about the Center for Photographers of Color, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Photogs of Color. Thanks for listening. Till next time.